Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. Good morning. Our scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You may be seated. So we're going to just uh, kind of get into this letter to the church at Smyrna. Um, one of the important things of reading these letters is understanding that context is everything. Um, okay, and so um, where you are has a lot to do with what you're feeling, uh, what you're sensing, and what you're experiencing, right? So, for instance, if you were drinking sweet tea, eating peach cobbler, and sweating profusely, you may be in Atlanta, right? You may be in Georgia, right? If somebody just cursed you out because you slightly budged in line with them, they uh, read you the riot act and, and assaulted you with insults about your clothes or your looks, you may be in New York City, yes. If you, if you just watched a surfer go by and then you saw a businessman walking down the street, you're still sweating and there's local beer everywhere, then you're in downtown St. Pete, right? So the things you see, the stuff you feel, the conversations that are around you, some of the, the air or the attitude of the environment you're in, uh, a lot of times is because of the place that you're at. Um, and place is not something that the biblical narrative is ignorant of. Actually, place is of paramount importance when you read the Bible. Uh, so much so that a lot of what we read goes right over our heads because we don't understand the place in which the writings is taking, uh, taking place in or the people and where they live uh, and who's being written to, right? So if you go way back in the Old Testament to the story of Abraham, you find out at the beginning of his story that he's living in this place called Ur, which, number one, is just a weird town, but number two is a place filled with uh, uh, worship of multiple gods. Uh, it's a polytheistic society, um, and you understand that in that society, true worship of God, the creator of heaven and earth, was not experienced. And so when God comes to Abram and says, hey, leave, I'm going to show you myself, and I'm none of what you're currently experiencing. None of the worship to the moon god reveals what true worship of the god of creation is like. 
None of the worship of your ancestors will lead you to a genuine understanding of me and my kindness and my mercy and my grace. So leave Ur because I'm going to bring you to a new place and I'm going to bring you to a new place so that I can re-identify an entire people around who I am rather than who these other gods are that you're following. Same is true of Moses. Same is true of Aaron. Same is true of Joshua, right? Same is true of Jesus and Peter and John and James and same is true of Paul. That the places they lived in had an air about them and so the message that came to them from God was a message that was delivered to a place at a time that had a feel in it. Right? And what's crazy about these letters is every single letter is catered to a particular people in a particular city with things that Jesus has to say about that place and about that time. Right? And so as we read these letters, we'll start to understand more and more of the contexts of the cities that they're in, that these people are in, and of the context of that world in that time and in that place. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, depending, depending on your view of history, none of it will be unfamiliar to us. Because nothing changes. <laughs> Though time rolls forward, humanity repeats and recycles and plays through the same themes, the same scenarios, the same idols, the same false gods, the same false hopes, the same fears, the same hopes. All these things are common to mankind, right? We are not that far beyond the church of Smyrna. We are not that far, like we found out last week, beyond the church in Ephesus. We are much like them. And so what is written to them is definitely something that we can learn from. So I wanna read this letter again um, so that we continue to be uh, washed over by these words from scripture. I'm going to pray and we'll, uh, we'll jump into this letter to the church at Smyrna. So here it is again, Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the church, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Join with me as we pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for this day and we are um, uh, aware of the fact that there's all sorts of distractions and uh, burdens and realities that would pull us away today from hearing your truth uh, that comes to us through your word as it is inspired by your spirit um, to show us so much about who you are and who we are and what it is that we need truly uh, in this world. We know, God, that um, 
there are many things in life that would set themselves up as the greatest things in life. Uh, there are many things in life that would set themselves up as something worthy of all of our attention and all of our energy and all of our effort and our focus. Uh, but this letter points out, as does so much of the scriptures, uh, the, the, the true reality of the all-encompassing nature of Jesus Christ and how he alone can satisfy our wandering hearts. And so just as we sang, God, would you lean us toward and into and pull us closer to the truth of Jesus being our everything. Not this world, not our possessions, not even our city or our hobbies and enjoyments and entertainment, but that Jesus would be our everything and that that would be more than just simply a statement of cliche, but that it would be meaningful um, and that it would embed itself in truth uh, so that we can actually grab hold of it. Uh, help us to see this letter is not just some strange thing predicting future events, but that it's real encouragement and warning for real people at a real time in a real place and that we can learn from that as well. We love you. We need you. Please help us as we work our way through this text today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so last week we had a, a gigantic summary to do, um, and the summary was basically, uh, this is what the book of Revelation is about. <laughs> um, I recognize that in doing that, there are uh, a myriad of ways that we fall short because the book is uh, colossal in its scope. But there's a couple of really important things that, that we tried to hone in on. Um, and one of the things that may be helpful for you as we keep walking through Revelation is, is having a view of the book um, in, in, uh, in just understanding some of what's to unfold as we, as we walk step by step through it. So if you've ever um, looked at a, a group called Bible Project on YouTube, or if you haven't, I encourage you to, uh, but they've got a great two-video series on the book of Revelation. Um, I've watched it three times in the last two weeks. I'm probably going to watch it one or two times every single week for the next seven weeks. Uh, it's, I think, combined about 23 minutes long, so you've got to just skip one sitcom episode on Netflix and watch this instead. Um, so I encourage you to look that up on YouTube, Bible Project Revelation video, and just read, watch through that uh, once or twice. Uh, really helpful for kind of getting familiar with the real story behind the book of Revelation. Uh, but one of the important things about Revelation is that it is not a book containing a secret code that will tell you the timing of the end of the world. Okay? Uh, you've been lied to by an entire culture that has tried to sell you books um, to tell you you can figure out what the witnesses are, who the dragon is, where the beast will come, when the millennia is, and so on and so forth, okay? Uh, they're all a bunch of liars because Jesus Christ himself told his disciples, no one will ever know the time I'm coming back, okay? It was so important that he repeated it time and again. He made it very clear that not even angels nor the Son of Man knows the timing of the return, okay? That's a dramatically powerful statement for the one who knew everything to say of himself, I don't even know the end, okay? That's pretty, we should pay attention to that, okay? You cannot know the end. And so it's the arrogance of man that reads the book of Revelation and looks at current events or historic events and says, aha, 
I have a secret wisdom that no one, even Jesus, has possessed. And then write you a book about it, okay? They're, they're lying to you, okay? I, I, I love you enough to tell you that. Um, what we do have in the book of Revelation is an unveiling uh, or a revealing of an unseen spiritual reality that is happening in God's world, okay? John, the writer of Revelation, has a vision, and he tells this vision to these churches in a letter that's supposed to circulate amongst them, okay? It's a real letter to real people at a real time in real places, and so he's warning those churches through this letter, and this letter, this book of Revelation, is filled with symbolic imagery and numbers, and all of these symbols are tied to Old Testament stuff, Old Testament visions and Old Testament prophecies, Okay, so there's a lot of connection to Zechariah, to Daniel, to Isaiah. And so the guys, the people that are reading this were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, and so they're starting to understand some of the stuff through this symbolic imagery and numbers that are going on, right? And so all of this has been given to God's people to show God's heavenly perspective on history and on current events. And the book of Revelation reveals a historical pattern of the world. And it also reveals the truth that God will bring about once and for all the kingdom that he's promised to bring about, right? This all was written to these groups of people that John knew. One of the reasons he's writing it to them is because their real life situations in those churches at that time needed encouragement. They needed to know there was something greater going on behind the things that they were facing. They needed to know why they should remain faithful to Jesus because he was going to fulfill his promise and bring a new heavens and a new earth. And they were to be encouraged through this letter. And so through this letter, we too ought to be encouraged. It ought to bring us hope and also challenge as we see the truth behind the truth of what we're experiencing. And so in the letter to Ephesians last week, we, st- we saw a strong warning to the church about how they weren't loving one another the way they used to. Jesus gave them such a strong warning. He said, you've got some really good things going on, but the thing you're missing is a thing that's going to put you in danger of not really being a true, faithful church of Jesus Christ anymore. He warned them, I'm going to pull out the lampstand, which just basically means you're not going to be a faithful, true representative of who I am anymore if you don't have love in your midst, right? It was, a, it was a really strong warning. And actually, I don't say this all the time, but I highly recommend if this is your church and these are your people, uh, listen to last week's message. It's online. Uh, you can find it on podcasts. Uh, it was a really important moment for us as a church, I believe. Uh, the Spirit brought about that moment um, by His work in our midst, and, and I believe uh, it was for every single one of us. And so if you haven't heard that, I'd encourage you, to go back and look at it. And what we had last week that we don't have this week is a familiarity with the church that was being written to, right? So prior to last week, we were in the book of Ephesians. We had talked about the church at Ephesus. We had talked about how it started in Acts. We had talked about how Paul kind of was a leader there for a while and then how he kind of had to go and leave the church to other people and then he wrote a letter back to them to encourage them. And so we had a familiarity with Ephesus, but now we come to Smyrna and we're like, Smyrna who? Smart? Smyrna? What? Right? So we don't have a whole lot of familiarity with Smyrna. And so here we um, are going to need to gain some of that uh, familiarity today. One of the important things about these letters is understanding who they're coming from. 
right? And so back up with me just a little bit to Revelation chapter 1. We need to just look at uh, how Jesus is described as John beholds him, right? And so we, we learn at the, the beginning of the letter that John is on the Isle of Patmos, uh, he's been exiled there. He's really old. He's the last living disciple. Um, and he's uh, suddenly kind of visited with this vision, right? And in this vision, he, two things keep happening to John in this vision. He hears things, and then he sees things, okay? And if you ever study the book of Revelation, it's important to, to pay attention to those two things that are going on because often what John hears would lead you to conclude certain things, but then what John sees ends up bringing about a different conclusion, okay? For instance, in Revelation chapter 4, there's a declaration about one being, the only one ever, who is worthy of opening the scroll of God's plan for all of history. There's only one, they're like, and there's a proclamation that goes out, behold, the one who can open the scroll. That's what John hears and then he turns around, and what does he see? He sees a little lamb slaughtered standing there, right? If you were to hear, behold, the only being who's worthy, what would you think you'd see? You'd turn around and see a soldier or a giant glowing angel, right? Like, that's what you'd think. Behold, there's never been anything like this ever. And then John turned around, and he saw a slain lamb. Right? The juxtaposition of those two realities are to bring us to this phenomenal realization that no one is like Jesus. Why? Because he laid his life down. Because he was slaughtered for his enemies to show them his great love. Right? And so in the beginning, John hears a voice, verse 11, that says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then he turns, and in this situation, John is overwhelmed by what he sees. It says this, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John beholds Jesus in all of his resplendent glory. John had never seen Jesus like this before. John had, had seen the meek and lowly, the humble Christ. John had even seen the resurrected Jesus, but he still looked like a man. He came to the disciples and said, touch me, feel me, I'm, I'm here, right? He was still, but in this moment, in this vision, in this line of sight, John finally beheld Jesus as he truly was, right? And we said last week that John fell over like one of those goats that gets scared and poof because of how stunningly glorious Jesus was in this moment. John had never beheld Jesus in this way before. Now, in each of the letters that John writes, there is a, a lot of similar statements in them. 
And one of the similarities is the way that every single letter opens. It opens with these words, and to the angel of the church in blank, so Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Philadelphia, Laodicea, like all the churches, right? And to the church in Smyrna, write the words of fill in the blank. Every letter begins with this, and every letter uses, right in that fill in the blank, the words of uses part of the imagery from Revelation chapter one. So first John tells all the churches, this is the glorious Christ. And then in each specific letter to each specific church in each specific city, he says the words of the one like this, right? And he's doing something by naming this aspect of the characteristics of Jesus. In this description, he's painting a portrait of Jesus for the church in that place so that they can see Jesus in a particular light in the, in, uh, amongst the reality of the city that they're living in. And so in our letter today, it's uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And this is why. The reason that those words are used in the letter to Smyrna is because Smyrna was a tremendous city. Smyrna was uh, a city that had risen to prominence both economically and religiously. If you want to know geographically where it is, it's in modern-day Turkey. The city's called Izmir, so it actually still exists as a city today. Smyrna in John's day was a rich city, right? Like it was a, a port city or a harbor city with merchants flowing in and out of it and going all throughout Asia from that place, right? Think New York City, right? Think San Francisco. Think Harbor Town. Think a lot of goods coming in and out of the city. Smyrna had paved streets, which was a rarity in its day. It had a library. It had a gymnasium, right? It was a place of recognized power and significance, Smyrna was also a highly religious city. It was home to a renowned temple to the mother goddess Athena. Also, there were imperial cult temples in Smyrna. And it also had a strong Jewish presence. One of the significant things about Smyrna is that it was a city reborn. The city had originally rose to prominence in the 11th century B.C., but then it kind of faded out and was reestablished in association with Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. And by the time of John's writing, it was one of the principal cities of Roman Asia and was in competition for the title First City of Asia. On their coins or, or, or their currency, it actually had an inscription that said, the first of Asia in beauty and size. Smyrna was glorious, it was beautiful, it had a lot of things that no other city had, it was rich and wealthy, it was prominent, and to the people in this city, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and rose. Jesus is saying to Smyrna, I am greater. Jesus is saying to Smyrna, I was here before and I will be here long after. Jesus is saying to the people of Smyrna, there is nothing that can compare to me in beauty and in significance. He is the first and the last who died and came to life. And these followers of Jesus in Smyrna, they lived amongst a proud population. 
in the midst of a city that was significant and on the rise. But what we find early in the letter is that they were not, in fact, very much like the people of the city in which they lived. Let's look at verse 9. It says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That doesn't sound like a group of people living in a prosperous place at a prosperous time, does it? There's something funky going on here. The <clears throat> typical things that a resident of Smyrna enjoyed, this group of people was not enjoying. Something was going on. And Jesus was telling this people, I know. He was stating his omniscience, I know. He had complete knowledge of all events and all situations. He says, I know there's tribulation. I know of your poverty. And I know that people slander you. Right? This communication tells us that this group of people is in the midst of a struggle. Right? They're in this glorious, beautiful city that's on the rise, but they are a struggling people. In relation to those who are prospering in the city around them, they are poor, and they are being spoken badly of by the more prominent religious group of their day. And so out of these things, I want to take some time and take a look at their poverty and their true riches. I love that statement in the parentheses, but you are rich, because there's a truth about earthly riches and spiritual riches that's illuminated here in this church, Smyrna. They may not be earthly rich, but they are truly spiritually rich. And just an aside, by the way, if our typical prosperity theology were biblically accurate, then why didn't Jesus speak against their poverty here in Revelation? Right? If the truth of the Bible is that we should always be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, then they should be corrected for their poverty here, right? We've been sold a bill of goods by a lot of bad theology that says Christianity equals prosperity. It does not. Jesus actually affirms the faithfulness of this church. This church is one of only two in these seven letters that doesn't have something against them. Jesus doesn't tell them, you're doing something wrong and you need to change. He doesn't. It's one of the only two churches that he doesn't do that to, right? So we know that poverty, experiencing real physical earthly poverty, is something that Jesus expected for his church, right? That's tough for us because we, a lot of times we're told a lot of different things than that. So what's going on here? Why is the church in Smyrna not enjoying the wealth of the city of Smyrna? Because the city is growing even larger and more prosperous. One of the main reasons that Smyrna is growing wealthy and growing prosperous is because they are walking hand in hand, step in step with the Roman Empire. Okay? The city has proclaimed itself a regional capital. They have set up temples to Caesar to make sure Caesar gets it. We really love you, Caesar. We're going to kiss your hand. 
We're going to wash your feet. We're going to bow down to your, to your wealth, right? Like they as a city have decided, okay, looking around the world, this is the way stuff's going right now, right? The powerful get more powerful. The rich get more rich, right? The, the slaves get squashed, right? The false gods get worshipped. The idols of prosperity and comfort and wealth, they get prominence in life. So the city's looking around at that context of Rome and saying, we're in. We're all in. Whatever Rome says is good, we say is good. Whatever Rome says is bad, we say is bad, including Jesus, right? So whatever the world's climate reads, we're just, we're just going to reflect that. We're going to be a thermometer, not a thermostat. We're just going to simply reflect the surroundings, what's around it. That's what's going on in Smyrna. That's why Smyrna is prospering. And that's exactly why the church in Smyrna is poor. Because the church in Smyrna is doing what Jesus told them to do. To look at the world around them. And to discern that which is false. And to turn away from worldly idols. And to worship Jesus as Lord, not Caesar as Lord. So, therefore, the church in Smyrna suffered. There may have been business alliances that existed in Smyrna that the people in the church refused to affiliate with because of their crooked practices. It could have been so. It could have been so. It was normal for people in Smyrna to profit off of worship of Caesar and worship of false gods. The church of Smyrna would not participate. They would not. There were certain ethics and morals that were normal and acceptable in Rome that the church in Smyrna said no to, and therefore they were ostracized. They were pushed to the margins. They were strangers acting weird, not buying into everything else around them, not taking the blue pill. They were resisting. And so they gained attention in a negative way in the city that surrounded them, right? The, the following of Jesus for the church at Smyrna was costly, right? It made them unpopular. Even religious people were slandering them, right? It made them poor. They, were not, they weren't able to profit off of the system of Rome, which was largely oppressive to lots of people, right? They, they turned away from these things, And because of it, they were struggling, and they were poor. And I want to look at four scriptures addressed to two groups of people. Excuse me, five scriptures. The two groups of people are those who are poor and those who are rich. Because you might be sitting here feeling poor, thinking you're poor, and very truly being poor, right? Right? Or you might be sitting here and considering all things, you may be rich, right? The Bible has four categories when it comes to wealth and poverty. We're not going to get into this, but I just want to list these. Number one, there are righteous poor in Scripture, okay? Righteous poor, meaning people that are doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord, and they are poor, okay? And there are righteous rich in Scripture. People who are doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord who are also 
rich, wealthy, right? There are unrighteous poor, those who are foolish and dumb and do not conduct their lives with wisdom, and they are poor. And there are those who are foolish and arrogant and mean-hearted, and they are rich, right? So we can never simply look at poverty and riches and say one is righteous and one is unrighteous. Okay, there's a nuanced conversation that always has to happen. Okay, sometimes doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord will make you poor, as is the case in Smyrna. Sometimes doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord will allow you to have riches. Okay, so we never just want to carte blanche make a statement about rich or poor. Okay, there are those four categories, and we've got to pay attention to that. That being said, if you are poor, be encouraged by this. Number one, understand what is your true possession. 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, As sorrowful, this is describing us, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. In that short verse, Paul is putting together what it's like to not have stuff according to the world, but to have everything according to God, okay? You may not possess physically everything that the world says is great, but you do possess spiritually, because of Christ, everything that is great, okay? Be encouraged by that. Understand, if you are poor, your greater riches are in Jesus, okay? Also, number two, if you are poor, look with eyes of faith to the future, remembering there is an inheritance. James 2.5 says, listen, my, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Right? One of the greatest examples of this in our lifetime is Mother Teresa, who chose of her own volition to reject earthly wealth and to live amongst the poorest of the poor of the poor that the globe has ever seen. And I would venture to say she was rich because she had what money could not buy. All right? So that 2 Corinthians 6.10 and James 2.5, amongst others, are for you if you're poor. And if you are rich... Number one, do not love your money. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. How do you know you love money? Give a bunch of it away once in a while. If that plunges you into a deep depression and you cannot imagine your future, being bright at all, that means you've trusted in and probably love your money, right? God's call to give is not a, a, a mean call, right? It's a call that would beckon our hearts to true worship. It's a call that would loosen our grip from those things that are never going to last. It's a gracious call to give up what is earthly so that we can gain what is spiritual, right? So do not love your money. First Timothy 6.10 also says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That was not true of the church at Smyrna. They did not love money so as to dive into uh, corrupt practices to try to gain money. They were satisfied with not having wealth because they had Jesus. Right? So number one, if you are rich, do not love your money. And number two, be generous. Share and seek a future heavenly treasure over a temporary earthly one. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I knew a guy for a while who was gaining promotion after promotion after promotion at a retail outlet here in St. Pete. He had started as an entry-level employee, and he had moved up and eventually became a manager of one department, then moved over and became a manager of another department. Eventually, he was conflicted with his job because at his job, he was encouraged to kind of toe the company line and push people toward debt, uh, piling on top of themselves all sorts of credit card uh, obligations so that they could gain new stuff. <laughs> stuff they probably didn't even really need. Stuff that was just slightly better than the stuff they already had, right? Like it was the mantra of the company to, to push people toward that kind of purchasing habits. And eventually, he saw it as evil. He was like, I, I, I don't think this is good. I don't think it's healthy. I understand it's what's going to happen, but I'm not going to take part in it. And so he quit. He moved on, right? I'm not saying things are bad, right? But the love of money was driving the business model. He was seeing around him this air Right, this culture that just said, pile up the debt to get more of the stuff, and he was just like, I don't, I don't want to play part in it. I refuse, and so he quit and walked away, and graciously the Lord provided for him. But I think that's some of what the church of Smyrna was experiencing. They refused to buy into the Roman Empire's game, and they weren't profiting. They were left poor. Ultimately, what Jesus is calling the people in Smyrna to is loyalty or faithfulness, however you want to label it, to Jesus over the culture of the time, the God of the age. And when Jesus said, I'm the first and the last, I'm the one who died and rose, he's saying, I'm greater than the culture you're in. I have more to give you than the culture that you're in. The riches that I offer you of my true kingdom are far more than the riches of these mere earthly kingdoms. Jesus was the true first and the last. He was the only truly resurrected one. And so the church is not corrected for their tribulation and poverty and the slander against them. They are encouraged in the midst of it. And they are comforted by knowing that Jesus knows. And what's more... The church here is called to endure there in Smyrna. 
right? The letter doesn't conclude with, get out of town, folks. The city's going to hell in a handbasket. Jump ship, yo. Right? Like, if you see prosperity around you, you better get out of there. Like, that's not what Jesus says. So he's not saying that to us, right? Because is our city on the rise? Yes. Is there prosperity around us? Yes. Is there an heir, a God of the age that our city is buying into? Oh, yeah. St. Pete is becoming what St. Pete is becoming because St. Pete is affirming the culture around it and saying, yep, we'll lead the way. (laughs) We're going to champion these causes. We are all in comfort and pleasure. It's us. It's who we are. Come, O peoples, and enjoy everything that the city has to offer. And Jesus is not telling us flee, right? Jesus is saying, pay attention to the nuanced realities that are before you and do not seek wealth and prosperity at the cost of faithfulness to Jesus. Do not be more faithful to St. Pete. Do not be more faithful to America. Do not be more faithful to the heir of the age than you are to Jesus because the God of the age will lead you astray and Jesus is faithful and true. Revelation 2, 10 to 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus doesn't say leave. In fact, Jesus says this is going to get harder. Jesus says this is going to be worse. It's going to cost you more. And the devil's going to throw you in jail. Right? You're actually going to, going to become criminalized because of faithfulness to Jesus. Whew. Right? But don't run away. He says endure. There's a little caveat here. I don't know if this will happen to us or not. But he says endure even to death. Hold on to Jesus even if bowing to him and not the other king will cost you your head. Why? Because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than Rome. He's greater than Caesar. He's greater than Smyrna. And he's coming with a reward. There may be rewards here, Jesus is saying, but they pale in comparison to the later and greater reward. So hold on. Be faithful. Endure. Right? Jesus names what needs to happen. They're going to be tested. Usually tested has to do with testing of faith, which means God's involvement in the whole thing. So even when they're poor, and even when there's tribulation, and even when they're locked up, Jesus is doing something greater in the midst of all those troubles. So hold on to Jesus. And he says that when you are faithful, you will gain a crown of life. 
Smyrna was a port city, like I talked about earlier, kind of somewhat circular in, semicircular in layout. And behind it was a range of mountains. And it was often referred to, this range of mountains, as the crown of Smyrna. There was this physical beauty that tied itself to the prosperous wealth and the political advancement of Smyrna. It was, it was just becoming a spectacle in total. At that time, there were also crowns given to athletes who competed in games. We call them the Olympics, right? That the Roman uh, citizens would have known about. And so Jesus draws two parallels to the life of the church in Smyrna. It says there is a greater reward. There is a greater crown. It is greater than the crown that is obtained by physical prowess, and it is greater than the crown that is obtained by loyalty to your city and your country. It is the crown of being loyal to Jesus. And the only way the crown of being loyal to Jesus is obtained by any one of us is by trusting in a crown that was put on the head of another, right? The crown of death. Because in Revelation 4, only one was worthy of opening the scroll. Here, in Revelation 2, there's only one worthy of the crown of life. And it was Jesus. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. A life that endured tribulation, that endured poverty, and that endured slander. Everything that was against the church in Smyrna, Jesus had experienced full force. The height of the hurricane slammed into Christ, greater force than any of us will ever see. Persecution to death, poverty to obscurity, slander to being betrayed by his own. Jesus faced it in a greater way than anybody. He deserved the crown of life, and what did he get instead? The crown of death. The soldiers wove together thorns in the shape of a crown, and they placed it on the head that should have received a crown of life. And they took a stick, and they beat the crown into place on Jesus' head so that thorns pierced his scalp, so that blood flowed down his forehead and into his eyes and blurred his sight. Jesus was given a crown that you and I deserve, the crown of death. Because of our alienation from God, because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our rebellion, because we say we want to be God of our own lives, we don't want God telling us what to do. We deserve that crown of death, but Jesus took it instead. And so when Jesus says, you can have a crown of life, it's because he bought it for you. By taking your death, he bought life. He is the first and the last. He is the one who died and rose again. He is the one who has the crown and wants to give it to you. Be faithful to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Whether you're rich or poor, worship Jesus. Put your faith in him and endure 
because we will face trials. But when we overcome and are faithful, we will receive that crown. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the one who has been given the ultimate crown of life because you endured a crown of death. Jesus, you faced a punishment that we deserve. But we do not need to fear that punishment when we put our faith in you. Because by your faithfulness, because of your obedience, because you endured, you have earned for us a crown of life so that when we endure to the end, we might receive that same crown. Lord, help us. Some of us are genuinely facing hard times because we are trying with everything in us to be faithful to you. God, we know we fall short, but still we are pursuing faithfulness, and in so doing, often we're losing in this world. We're falling behind the times. We are not elevated as elite amongst our culture because we follow a different king than they follow. Lord, would you help us to endure? And God, if we're rich, would you help us not love our riches? May we love what is truly rich about us, and that is that Jesus has given us every spiritual blessing, and that it's because of him that we live and move and have our being. So Lord, help us to see this life rightly, to live in our times with wisdom, and to bow to Jesus as our faithful king. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.